Okay, that seems like an impressive, confident thumb, so I can go. <coughs> Which means I take the glasses off because I can't see. I'll wait for the young lady there to get situated. And I guess now we're off and going here. It's March the 13th, 2022. Lecture discussion number 166 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, Genesis 15, Two Birds Mystery. Right? That's where we are. Before we start with that, I'm going to reiterate kind of what I think is going on. I'm looking at what Russia is doing, as I've said since it began, in the prism or through the prism or through the looking glass, if you want to think of it that way, of Ezekiel 38. I want to know how is Russia going to set itself up by what it's doing now to invade Israel in some eventuality? And why would they invade Israel? And I believe that he's doing it for the same reason that he is invading the Ukraine. He wants the wheat, but I think primarily he wants an opportunity to get to the Middle East with a major military, and that means the port city of Odessa, which the the Soviet Union loved Odessa. It was the black pearl of the Soviet Union, and he wants it back. So all of this is to make sure he has Odessa He may not even realize, because obviously the man cannot think rationally or clearly at this point. Now, he's not to be underestimated. Maniacal people, evil people, do evil things, and they think in evil ways. So our ability to understand him is not necessarily going to be accurate. But he may not know that he is going to attack Israel at this point. But he will. The Bible is absolutely unequivocal. So... We'll have to see what he does. If he takes Odessa, then I'm going to say we are watching the beginning of the Ezekiel 38 confederation. And we see that he is uh, recruiting uh, Syrian fighters to come into the Ukraine and fight in that particular war. Well, Syria and the Russian uh, empire, if you want to think of it as an empire, the Russian uh, country, are absolutely allied now. And they, that is exactly what Ezekiel 38 says would happen. You will have Russia, you will have Persia, you will have uh, Syria uh, for certain that come to attack Israel. Oh, yeah, I, I see that Israel's involved in uh, trying to... Re- they recognize, they're, they have read the Bible. They are not idiots. They understand that at some point Russia attacks them. And the spoils that it looks like he's going for is the oil fields of the Middle East, all of it, including that which is in Israel, which is the Golan Heights, as we know. So if he can take the oil that is in the Middle East with the combination of himself, Syria, and Iran, if he can overcome Saudi Arabia, he can overcome Israel, and all of them are interested in overcoming Israel. If he can do that, then he almost has a complete monopoly on the oil fields in the world. The only, one, the only exception would be the United States. We have more oil than he does, uh, no matter what. That's right. But uh, the United States is behaving exactly as it says. We have Great Britain, which is the lion. We have the young lions, which is obviously Canada, uh, Australia, and the United States. Some would say India. Some would say parts of Africa, because the British Empire extended all to all of those areas. But in any event, the, the lion is sitting on the sidelines. Well, we're providing our ammunition. We're providing... Uh, munitions and some some tactical systems. But by and large, we are not interfering with uh, the Russian takeover of the Ukraine economically. He's going to destroy himself economically, Putin is. He doesn't care. So when you're dealing with people like that, you cannot, you cannot say that they will act reasonably. 
You have to be prepared for unpredictability, and that's what we're seeing. Okay, enough of that <coughs> geopolitical stuff. Uh, again, watch what the Bible says and predict that, and you will be fine. Okay, it is somewhat satirical that I find myself having returned to the two birds of Genesis 15. I devoted multifold months, didn't I, Dave, as you know, to this chapter so long ago, a long time ago. How many years ago was it? 2008, when I was a young man, apparently. There's evidence that that may have been so. But I, I did so much of it. I did it so long ago. I pretty much at the time completely annoyed the Cliffside Analog audience that was in, that was there. They just went, oh, please, can we do anything besides Genesis 15? So I think again that it is comical that I'm here again. And that methodology that I use is exactly the same as I'm doing today. So consistency, huh? how about that? And I haven't noticeably changed at all. As I'm writing this, I realize, hey, this is the exact same thing I did once before, in a sense, the shock face here, right? I'm, I'm, I'm still driving away the visitor every Sunday. And seriously, I am attempting to irritate, to aggravate uh, as many of you that are listening as uh, with a profusion of questions as possible. I, I have all these questions, and it appears that I don't have any answers. I always... Zero answers. Well, that's intentional. That's my discursive style. I want you to know what the questions are. If you know the questions, you will find your answers by without me. I know that's true. But if you don't know the questions, you'll never go anywhere. And that's exactly my plan here is to get you to move along these lines. So that was exactly how uh, I concluded Lecture 165, a bunch of questions and zero answers. And I said that there were ten questions that were left unanswered, and and no one's going to remember those ten questions that I rattled off at the end of them, so I thought I would re-ask them. This time I'm going to do it with their deserved aggregation, or their uh, aggregate. And most of them, some of them not so much, because they're, they're just not as... Difficult as others in that sense. What was Abraham's contribution? That was question number one. What was his contribution of free will in Genesis 15? Because I'm going to propose that he had a contributory or contributable uh, will here. How much did he have and where was it in Genesis 15? Number two, question two of last week. Is the Bible the template for the design of the new city of Jerusalem? In other words, uh, is the volume of the new city of Jerusalem infinite? That's the question that we've been asking, right? And then that leads to number three. Does finity exist? Does the finite exist? Finity being a substance or an individual that's in a limited state. And I asked this last week in the form, is there only infinity? If something exists and the definition of something is existent or existent, if that's the definition, something must be something and it has to have some kind of existent aspect to it. If that's the definition and information cannot be destroyed, what then is a limited state? Now, 15 people just fell asleep right there. <laughs> Congratulations for you two for pretending to be awake. That's really very exciting. Through the first page, might be a new record. Anyway, number four. What are the differences between the hell of the evil rich Pharisee, Luke 16, 24 through 31, that's Lazarus and the evil rich Pharisee, and you have to know that that is an evil man in that, in that particular place. If you don't know that, in torments, that's where he is. You have paradise and torments, and he's in torments, or bosom of Abraham and torments. 
What is the difference between where the rich Pharisee, the evil rich Pharisee is in Luke 16, 24 through 31, and the place of imprisonment of the fallen angels? Because that's 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 6, Genesis 6, Revelation 9. It's called Tartarus, typically. So let me put that on the board for some of you that may not know. There are angels imprisoned, and at least some of them are in Tartarus. Now, where are the others? Let me rattle that off again. Jude 6, Genesis 6, Revelation 9, 2 Peter 2, 4. begins to develop the imprisonment of the angels. It's for us to figure out why are they being imprisoned. If they are in separate containment facilities, why are they in separate? Why are they being separated from one another? And, and, and I should add to that really quickly. Angels do not physically die. Wow. Give this guy more money. How did he come up with that? That's weeks of study. But angels do not physically die, though they can manifest physical capability. I almost spit all over my paper here. Therefore, it becomes necessary to analyze the intermediate state of humans and animals and contrast it to the current standing of angels, both faithful and those who are fallen and imprisoned. So I have faithful angels, I have fallen angels that are not imprisoned, apparently. At least at the time of Christ, that was the case. But now there's a big argument that says, or a large argument, I guess. Large and big, what's the difference? Interchangeable, I hope, synonym. But that Christ got rid of the demonic realm and imprisoned all of it at the time he was here. He cast it away. That would be um, Matthew 12. We'll have to get to that, but... My point for today is we have to, we don't have to, but we want to analyze the intermediate state of humans. That's humanity that has died physically and their spirits or their consciousness and their personhood has gone on to where God has put them, either with him or not with him. So there's an intermediate state before the resurrection occurs. And we have animals also in that intermediate state. And I ask, how complex is the intermediate state? What is it very similar to what the current angelic state is? Can it manifest physically in some form? It's not a body, but does it? Is it able to function physically somehow, just like the angels apparently can? And in this case, the the fallen angels will be the focus for today. Though we're going to begin with this purpose of body resurrection for saved mankind and animals, and ask if there is equivalency with respect to the faithful angels. What do I mean by that? Will there be equivalency between our resurrected state and the state of angels in the new city of Jerusalem since angels and animals and humans are all in the new city of Jerusalem? It seems to be logical that they all, we all have the similar capability. So we'll evaluate that. Note the qualifier save for mankind. And the attributive adjective is not needed for the uh, nefesh rahaya animals because they are saved automatically. And that again, because of Romans 5.14, Genesis 9, Genesis 7, Leviticus, etc. The animal kingdom does not carry guilt, whereas the angelic and the human kingdoms will be judged, as you know. I should make the mark. Oh, these two don't qualify. They have, they have, the statute of limitations has gone out on those. 
and this one too. I cannot be civilly or criminally charged for those. Okay. Okay, in addition to those questions, there's always the ubiquitous why to be attended to. And I'm still on, I'm still on question four here, aren't I? Why are the fallen angels imprisoned in the first place? Why did Jesus God, the creator of all things, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, why, and the angels are created things. He makes that very clear. We're created things. Animals are created things. Why did the creator of all things uh, imprison these angels? And then why did Christ make a proclamation to these beings that are imprisoned? 1 Peter 3, 19, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, Jude 6, Revelation 19. Obviously, this proclamation occurred during the sign of Jonah, which is the three, th- three days and three nights interval between Christ laying down his life and Christ resurrecting him, himself. John 2:19 through 22, John 10:17 through 18. I'm throwing those references in so you can see that Christ resurrected himself. Now, the entire triunity of the Godhood was involved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's just impossible for any other way to, for it to be. I'll make that clear. But Christ made it also definitive that he would resurrect himself. He had the power to do that and no one could take his life. He must lay it down. Okay. It is necessary to include the understanding that the triune Godhead, Genesis 1.26, 3.22, the Elohim, the us, again, all involved in the death and resurrection of the infinite Son. Got to have that information in your forefront so when it shows up, doctrinally, you're going to be okay. And I say it all this uh, this way all the time, or many times, infinity necessitates infinity. Omniscience must be met with omniscience. Obviously, omnipotence requires om- omnipotence, which is why I always ask, how much did Jesus Christ weigh at his resurrection? How much power does it take to lift an infinite being? Obviously, uh, it must take omnipotence. Anyway, what did Christ say to these fallen angels when he went to them? Why did he say it? The answers are at Genesis chapters 1 through 3, specifically Genesis 3, 4, Job 1, Job 2, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Psalm 10. That's where the answers are. We've covered those many, many times. Leviticus 16. And guess where else it's at, the answer to that question. Why did he go to preach to the angels? Where else in the Bible is that? And you would be correct if you said... Genesis 15. So these questions about what is he doing with the imprisoned angels is answered in Genesis 15. The two birds, as a matter of fact. So that's how we got here. And that's also Matthew 26, 39 through 46. All of those that I just rattled off, Genesis 3, 4, Job 1, Job 2, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Psalm 10, Leviticus 16, Genesis 15, Matthew 26, 39 through 46. All of those lead to provide the justification and the potentiality for the victory in the war of the angels in Revelation 12. Michael wins that war. And the foundation that allows him to win that war is those is in those uh, passages that I just rattled off. 
So needless to say, question number four, we're still on question number four. It's taken me two pages just to, just to outline what's going on in question number four. Let me remind you what it is. I have, what are the differences between the hell of the evil rich Pharisee and the place of imprisonment of the fallen angels? That's the question. So that's a loaded question. A loaded down question at least. Why and when, number five, why and when did Jesus Christ empty Abraham's bosom? Christ disclosed this to the saved thief. Now, everybody assumes something that I think is incorrect with the, with the thief on the cross. The thieves on the cross, there's two of them. They always forget the second one. Because the focus is on the first one, but the second one is right there. Christ disclosed to the saved thief, and that means that he disclosed it to the other thief, didn't he? Now, we don't know, and that's why we're not allowed to harvest the saved, are we? We don't know the fate of the thief that appears to be to us unsaved. But we don't know. Whosoever cries out to the Lord, Joel 2.32, will be saved. We don't know what he did. It's not recorded. It's left in doubt. So that's why the, everyone assumes that, that he remained unsaved. We don't know. Do not be quick to, to say that's an unsaved person. We don't know. We don't search the hearts and the minds. But Christ disclosed the reason that he's going to empty Abraham's bosom to both thieves. Luke 23.43 would, would have been heard. Both of them would have heard it. I'm wanting to know who else heard it. Christ's response to the plea of one of the thieves, and he says, remember me. That is Joel 2.32. So we know, saved. We got that. So here's, the, uh, here's another aspect of question number five, which again is why and when did Christ, Jesus Christ empty Abraham's bosom, which is paradise. Are the transference of paradise and the proclamation to Tartarus, are they connected? I have Tartarus and I have now paradise. Paradise. Not paradise, which would be D-I-C-E, which would be to die. Paradise. I hope I got that right. It's hard to spell. Is the transference of paradise when Christ empties it and the proclamation that he made to the imprisoned angels, because what did he not do to the imprisoned angels? He left them. What did he do to Abraham's bosom where, the, where Lazarus was? He removed them. So he empties paradise, but he leaves the imprisoned imprisoned, and those are the fallen angels. So we see this contrast. Why did he leave the angels imprisoned? And why did he remove paradise? Are they connected? Well, obviously they're connected. How then are they conjoined? Obviously the fallen angels got the meanings. Question number six. Why are the five, sta why are the five stages of the first uh, resurrection? Why are there five stages of the first resurrection? I said it goofy there for a second. There's five stages to the first resurrection. So I have the first resurrection. Think of it this way. I have a resurrection. We have resurrections. 
And we have the first resurrection. And the first resurrection has five aspects or phases or stages, whatever you want to say. Why are there five of those? Why didn't he just do it all at once? It's important, I believe it's important, to start to look at what God is doing and ask why, what's the purpose, all of those things in order for you to get a fuller understanding of how he operates, what he's trying to accomplish. Doesn't That's not a good way. That's blasphemy. What is he revealing? Let me rephrase this a little bit. Maybe it will help. Why is the abduction of the bride, what most people would say, the rapture, but it's more correct to say the abduction of the bride. Why is the abduction of the bride before the 75-day interval which is the resurrection of the Old Testament, the saints. Why did the bride go before the Old Testament saints? Why do the Old Testament saints have to wait to the 75-day interval before they're resurrected? Eventually, this question resolves into the why of the seventh millennium because we have seven millenniums, seven 1,000-year periods. First thousand, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. And then we have infinity. That is the eighth day. This is the seventh day, obviously, the sixth day, the fifth day, the fourth day, third, second, and first day. And each one of them is 1,000 years in, 1,000 years of time. So why is there seven of them? And again, all these chapters, seven 1,000-year chapters, you want to think of it that way. The seventh day is the Sabbath day. We know that. Everybody agrees with me on that. Okay, I agree with everybody on that. The seventh day is considered the Sabbath millennium, is the Sabbath millennial. So that didn't get us very far. We know that. And all theologians and commentators, and the great Sabbath rest is Genesis 2, uh, 2 through 3. All theological commentators associate the millennial reign of Christ on earth in the seventh day with the great Sabbath rest of Genesis 2, 2 through 3. But again, why do we have this Genesis Sabbath day rest seven day pattern? We know that seven represents in the Bible perfection, perfect order. We discussed that last week, I hope, that seven plus ten Equals 17, equals 1 and 7, 153 fish, the judgment aspect, the conclusion of the, of the matter, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, 14, Hebrews 9, 27. We, we got all of that, I hope. <coughs> Excuse me. Hebrews 9, 27 says this. It is appointed for men once to die and after this the judgment. And Hebrews 9, 27 is another of a deluge of verses that repudiates the atheistic evolutionary philosophy that physical death is final, that physical death is all-powerful. It is not. And Hebrews 9.27 is, is one of the New Testament complements, the Ecclesiastes 12.13 and 14. Hebrews 9.27 says physical death does nothing. It is appointed for men once to die and after this, the judgment. So it's immediately saying that there is an after this. And physical death does nothing, according to Hebrews 9.27, except separate the consciousness from the body. The person, both animal and human, continues. They, the person, the personhood is immortal. The soul and the spirit, the breath of life, 
uh, awaiting the resurrection. But for mankind, judgment comes. Going back to question number five for a second, the incredible statement from Christ in Luke 23, 43. Amen. He's saying to the thief, Amen, comma. I say to you, comma. Today, comma. You will be with me, comma, in paradise, which I'm emptying. And yes, the Greek word is literally amen there. And it's taken from the Hebrew word considered to have, to be amen. So it's literally amen. Amen, I say to you, you'll see truly or verily. But boy, you miss out when that, when this, your translation says that. Amen. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And amen in the Hebrew has three meanings. The first meaning is it's an oath. Amen is an oath. The second meaning is acceptance of the statement that has just been given to you. In this case, in this context, what was the statement? It was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Christ says, Amen. I accept that. I accept that statement. And third is a confirmation of belief. That you have belief, the person who makes the statement, and the person that you're making a statement to believes you. So those are the three aspects of the Hebrew word, Amen. And all three apply here. Though the thief likely and logically assumed Christ would soon becoming king of Israel. He probably thought, hey, remember me, I'm about to die here. You're going to become king of Israel probably on Wednesday or next week or a couple of days or maybe even in an hour, but I'm not going to make it. Remember me when you become king. And Christ says, Amen. I accept you. I accept you. I believe you. And it's an oath. Reciprocity. Okay, so that's probably what the the thief thought. He assumed Christ would be soon the king of Israel. And soon, however, is a, say with me, a relative term. And the thief soon is not God's soon. God's soon is, is, is different from our soon. And, and he's right. God is right. He's outside of time. When he says soon, he's right. It is soon to him. May not be soon to us, but that's the way it is. And you probably noticed when I said all of that, I adhere to the five comma position on Luke 23:43 because there is great debate over where the commas go. And I have the five comma position on Luke 23:43. The religious academics they fight over one comma mostly, where to put this one comma. They decided to place the second comma. Most of them either after the first you or after today. And you notice that I said, say to you, comma, today, comma. I have commas everywhere. Keep in mind that the commas are not inspired in your Bible. They are absolutely arbitrary. They are placed into the version or the translation at the complete discretion of the translators. And they make a big difference. You'll see commas in the Jesus God is all one word in Acts 2. And you'll see him put a hyphen there. Or they'll put a comma there. And the common is not there. Jesus God is one word. And so the whole point of all of that, yea, finally a point, is that uh, my commas are no less right or possible than their commas. 
So you have to decide whether or not you believe your translator when you read your Bible and you look at his or hers or their commas and see, are they consistent with what I know Scripture says about Christ or God? And again, I submit my commas are consistent with Luke 16, 24 through 31 and 2 Peter 2, 4, which then, of course, makes me right. Duh. And of course, there's the Greek word simeron which is usually translated this day. And Christ gave up his spirit at 3 p.m. And so, this day. You will be with me this day. Instead of, I say to you this day, sorry. You will be with me in paradise. That Greek word, simeron, is, is not always translated this day. But this day to Christ, we have to know what day that is. And I say that that's the day of his crucifixion. And Christ gave up his spirit at 3 p.m. What time? What day is that? That's still the this day. Does that make sense? Because the, the, the day does not end till when? Typically Hebrew time, 6 o'clock p.m. So the, that means the remembered thief would, would be with Christ in paradise on this day. Now, I made the case a while back that the thief did not die until Christ died. So when Christ dies at 3 p.m., then the thief dies at 3 p.m. or 3.01 or whatever. He can't die until Christ dies. Hi, Sherry. Great question that she asked a while back. I'm frustrating Sherry because I'm not answering her question on the resurrections yet. But I'm getting closer. Gosh, give me a break. I'll get there soon. My soon is not Sherry soon. I know that. Okay. But the remembered thief would be with Christ in paradise on this day that Christ said was this day. I hope that makes sense. So the rememberer remembered. Gosh, of course he did. And Joseph and Nicodemus in John 19:38 through 42 also were doing something on the this day of Christ. Okay, I hope that made sense. It probably didn't. Wait. Anyway, all statements by God are incredible. They're just incredible, and you've got to start thinking about them that way, and, and just don't think you've got it figured out. You've never got it figured out. No one figures it out. This is an infinite mind, an omniscient mind. But Luke 23:43 is another verse, another statement by Christ that renounces atheistic philosophy about death. The first death. I can't say this enough. The first death. You have to know your definitions of death. They're critically important. Christ renounces what the atheistic philosophy says about death when he's talking here to this thief. It's one of the most powerful refutations of what is taught in schools today that you can find in Scripture. It's incredible. Of course it's incredible. Jesus Christ is saying it. Evolutionists, monists, assert that there's only one death. And that death is supreme. And God says, no. There's two deaths. That's a big difference. Revelation 24.3 Obviously, the remembered thief did not believe that or say that he believed in one death. Hence the Amen. Because he implies, remember me after I die. When you are king. Remember me. Don't forget me. I'm going to die here. And you're going to be king. Remember me. I mean, a tremendously powerful theological statement that he says, that thief. 
But he didn't believe in one death, did he? Or he would have never said that. And hence again, the amen. Christ accepted his belief statement of two deaths. Because that's what man says. There's not one death. Well, if there's not one death, how many deaths are there? At least he said there's not one death. I know that. I'm going to say this. There's, there's two deaths. I don't know how I put it here. I got, I got two deaths. And guess what else I have? I have two lives. I'll put that in. You'll, you'll say lives. Oops, I about fell down here on the, but I'm going to go with lives. Two deaths and two lives. And Christ said, I accept what you have said. The point is, are you kidding me? I finally get another point here. Jesus Christ, the mighty God, Isaiah 9, 6, the everlasting, in response to Lord, remember me today. Lord, remember me. He says, this day you will be with me. Let me repeat that. This day, amen, you're right about this. There isn't just one death. And you're right that I have the power to remember you. And you're right that I will remember you. Amen. you got a lot of things right. You're right that I am the king. You're right about everything. This guy's amazing, this remembered thief. And Christ says, this day you... I wish he'd said his name. That would have been cool. If he said you, pick a name, Fred, you, Fred, will be with me. With me. So that's pretty cool. What's it like to be with Christ? Now, I want to know because that's kind of how I am, weird. What exactly, how exactly did this with me happen? Because it's got to be true. The thief was going to be with Christ. I want to know how. And I also want to know when. What did the remembered thief get to see, is my question ultimately. How long was the with me? What did he get to see? How much did Christ, how much with Christ did the remembered thief experience? In other words, how much with me was given to this man? I want as much with me as we can get. And I'm sure that thief wanted as much as he could get. Consider that the thief was crucified with Jesus Christ. So that's amazing. You're one of the men crucified with Jesus Christ. It's an incredible honor. It really is. You are side by side with the God of creation when he solves the sin issue. That's extraordinary. There you are with Christ. You are, he's already with Christ. He's been with Christ for hours now. So has the other thief. I, I really wonder about that other thief. I should say that real fast. He's on the cross and he's not dying. Now he's in agony, but he's not dying. I imagine he's seen many people butchered by the Roman, crucified by the Roman. He's not bleeding to death. He's hanging in there. So what's going on in his mind? What's keeping me alive? Okay. Where was I? 
this remembered thief was crucified with Jesus Christ. So again, he's already with Christ, and how much with Christ now continued? He was with Christ all the way up to, to Christ's death, then he dies, the other thief dies, and now who's with Christ? Obviously, the remembered thief is still with Christ. And so I wonder if the, if the thief, uh, did he hold his hand? Did he grab him? Did he hold, carry him? What did God do? He said, today, this day, amen, fantastic, great answer, you're going to be with me today, this day. Not tomorrow, not later, now. Did he accompany the creator of all things to Tartarus? Because that's where Christ is going. Well, Christ goes to Tartarus... And then he goes to paradise, is what I believe the order is. Well, we want to know that, don't we? If you're the thief, do you want to go and see all of this? Hey, take me. I'm going, maybe. I just want to know, did this thief see the Revelation 9 demonic forces? Did he see them? Did he hear the proclamation of 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20? Because Christ had something to say to these imprisoned angels and demons, fallen angels. I think it is far more extensive what he said than generally presented. For example, if Christ spoke to the remembered thief in his loud voice, because he has a loud voice, Luke 23, 46, Matthew 27, 46, Psalm 22, 1, Luke 23, 46. He's on the cross and he's screaming. How loud is loud? I've asked that thousands of times. I'll ask it again here. Well, he can be, but we would think that it's screaming. Remember, the people were trembled when they heard the voice of God, the nation of Israel did. It's really loud. So he's on the cross, and the Bible even reflects that he, he says things in a loud voice, which should be impossible for a crucified man. So his air system was absolutely functional. And let me put it in other words. Who else heard what Christ said? I, I'm right there with you. The answer from Terry uh, was everybody. Who's everybody? Everybody. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I believe we can safely conclude that the entirety of the angelic realm heard Christ say this to this thief. The statement is said from the cross. Goodness sakes, were all seven sayings from Christ on the cross meant to be heard by every living being? And Terry is repeating her position of yes. And again, how loud is God's loud? Our loud and God's loud are not the same loud. Ultimately, that's the issue here. But for today, Christ said, you will be with me. Neither Christ nor the remembered thieves, nor the remembered thief traveled to paradise or Tartarus with their bodies. So Christ defines what you is and what me is, and it does not include the body. And that again, another refutation of monism. It's everywhere. I called it the deluge earlier in this lecture, and it's absolutely that way. You can find Christ God saying that the one death is nonsense over and over and over again. It's relentless. 
as it always is the case. The Lord God Almighty, in a loud voice, in my opinion, makes it definitive, does not stutter, he does not equivocate, that you, the you of the thief, does not include his body, nor does the me include Christ's body. You are you, not the body. There's something that is you inside the body. The same thing for me. I am not the body. I am in the body. In other words, we... I say the in other words a lot now, don't I? I have to put that up there. I think it's been at least three times. Got to break that habit. I can't say that again the rest of the day. What are the chances? To rephrase. (laughs) That wasn't bad, huh? We are not the body. We are the consciousness. We're the spirit. We're the soul. The breath of the spirit of life. The mind. Luke 23:46 powerfully announces this cardinal truth to the to all living things. Because all living things that have the nefesh, the ruhah, the hayah, are not the body. The body has no. The body is just a vehicle. It's a manifestation of what the mind is thinking. Okay, the one who is the breath of life, the spirit of the breath of life, clearly left his body behind for a reason. See, that's another thing we don't really understand. He has reasons for that for all of these things that he has done, and we focus on just one reason. We say we well, left his body behind because he wanted to resurrect it. Well, he res- that's true. He left his body behind, though he had other things involved in that. It just goes like this. The deck of cards just fans out. You just got to go, wow, there's all of these little pieces. He left his body behind for a reason. Three days, three nights, and went to the imprisoned fallen angels. What was his rationality? What was he thinking? We're never going to figure out what he's thinking. There's too many pieces. But at least we get some of them. The fallen angels heard him and saw him. What did he look like without his body? Ever think of that? Hope not, because that's why I get the big money. Thinking weird things. What did he sound like? Because I have a disembodied spirit of the breath of life that is, in fact, the spirit of the breath of life himself. He proclaims to them. They see him and they hear him. Unquestionably, they recognized his voice. Because what is his voice? It's the voice. It's the voice of God. The Word of God, John 1.1. The voice of God is distinctive. There's only one voice of God. And Christ is the voice of God. And He has the voice of God. It cannot be counterfeited. It can't be duplicated. It can't be impersonated. He is the voice. It's His voice. What's He sound like? What's He look like? I submit Revelation 1.9-17. The loud voice is described. We, the loud voice, we get to t- know what he sound, what he looks like. Revelation 19, 11, 17 continues adding more information about what the, lo- the loud voice looks like. Daniel 7, 9 through 10, Daniel 10, 4 through 9. <coughs> when John saw, the Apostle John, the beloved John, the, 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 the beloved Apostle, 
the closest apostle to Christ. You can make that case easily. When John heard the voice and saw the voice, the loud voice, he fell at the feet of Christ as dead, Revelation 1.17. I completely expect that to be normal. See John 18.4-6. When the voice, the loud voice of God, the voice manifest, said, I am, everyone fell at his feet as dead. The entire Roman garrison, all the temple guard, everybody, Judas, with Satan inside of him, all fell. So falling at the feet of Christ when he speaks is a normality. And I expect that the prisons filled with demons had the identical experience. When Christ came down in and used his loud voice, every demon fell. Again, they have physical capability even though they're spiritual beings. He pinned them to the ground with his voice. That's what he did. What's it like to fall to the ground dead? That means you're not thrashing around. You're not able to get up. You're not able to move because your body is as dead as physical death. You're immobilized. That's what he does with his voice. When the I am speaks, no one can stand. All living beings fall at his feet as dead. Great question. What's the great question? Notice how I said it. All living beings fall at his feet as dead. Is that correct? I'll wait. The question is, what about the animals? Is there any evidence that when God speaks, the animals fall down as dead? Is it, in fact, all judged living beings? And it's only all judged living beings. Okay, where are we now? We are all the way up to question seven. Remember that? Question seven, why did the vultures come? Why did Abraham drive the vultures off? Did Abraham drive the vultures off? Why was Abraham placed in this Adamic deep sleep as dead? Because he is. Why was, uh, does this relate to Abraham's contribution of free will? Well, yeah, it does. And the building of the bride and the woman from the pure side of Adam. Yeah, all of that's here. Short answer. There's no short answers. That's, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, that's pretty short. There are no short answers. The vultures question is actually one component of the Abraham free will contribution. And I usually include the sacrificed animals into this district here. Though Abraham, he's in this high priest role somewhat. And that he, he's assigned responsibility to sacrifice and to divide, bisect. He divides him, separates the bodies. Uh, and, uh, of the animals. So he's got that position. He does not cut the birds in two. So we got the question is, did he kill both birds or did he kill one bird? Which, which bird did he kill? The turtle dove or the young pigeon? Or did he kill them both? Could have. We have to have a position. No, we don't have to have a position. I can hear the whole audience screaming. I don't have to think about any of this stuff. Weird person. 
but I believe that you will find the position to be valuable if you resolve it. I know you will. But the delivery of the animals is how we begin. Take me, God says, and he says we got a heifer, we got a ram, we got a goat, we got two birds. What's the obvious question? I've already said that there's a noatic reminiscence here. So what, what, uh, what's the obvious question? How'd they get there? Where'd they come from? I believe that it is obvious that God sent the animals to Noah. Genesis 7, 2 through 7, 9. Genesis 7, 2 through 7, 9. He sent them male and female, two by two, which I believe advances the conclusion that God himself provided the ingredients, if you want to call them that, of that which represents the take me of Genesis 15, 9. Another, oh, wow. To say it a different way, Abraham did not get these animals. He didn't run around and find them all. He didn't wander around and find a three-year-old heifer. He didn't find a turtle dove or a ram or a goat. They were brought to him, delivered to him. God delivered them as he did with Noah, as he did with Adam, Genesis 2.19. Note also the ram and the thorns, Genesis 22.13-14, through 14, that that was the replacement, the substitute, the sacrificial substitute. The picture of Christ is this ram in 22, 13 through 14 of Genesis. The Lord will provide himself. That is what we say all the time in the songs, Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide himself. The provision, the delivery of himself. So the take, God went and got animals that represented him. They are the himself. They are the take me. They are portraying that. Portraying himself. So we have this delivery of himself. And he, hence, uh, Abraham was assigned tasks that were, the subsequent, uh, that were subsequent to the delivery of the animals. So the first thing that I have, I want to think of it this way, is I have the animals coming. Delivered, provided by God. God provided himself. Jehovah Jireh. Can't say that enough. And the first thing that Abraham now does the, the, is he facilitates the death of the animals. That is the first aspect of his task, his assignment. He follows that by number two task, what is obviously the combating with the vultures. Again, we've got to repeat this. How many vultures came down? How long did Abraham fight the vultures? We have a vulture war. Abraham is warring against vultures. Notice the struggle. What were they struggling over? What were the vultures trying to do? It says so in the text. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? The vultures are coming down, and most people would say they're coming down to do what? They're vultures. What do vultures do? The vultures are coming down. They're after what? They eat dead flesh, right? They're coming down to eat the sacrifice. Now, are they going to be able to eat the sacrifice? No, because the sacrifice is who? It's Christ. It's a picture of Christ. So the vultures can't get to the body. They can't get the bodies. Because the totality of the bodies is the body of Christ, or at least Christ himself. At least, at most. 
So how many vultures came down? How long did the war last? And notice again the struggle, the contention was over the bodies of the take me, the, the body of the take me. So they're coming after the body. Think of it as one body if you want to do it that way. <coughs> so I have this fight over the body. We're struggling over the body, and that's much to the delight of who? That's right, Val, Joe, and Susie. Hi, Val, Joe, and Susie from California. Because they are always engaged with Jude 6, Deuteronomy 34, 6, Revelation 12, 17, 7 through 17, and Deuteronomy 18, 15, which is the typology of Moses, the body of Moses being fought over by Michael and Satan. And all of this, uh, we don't know for sure when it happens, but we see this Revelation 12 uh, struggle as well where Michael finally prevails and we recognize that's going on. Obviously, to no one, Zechariah 11.13, Matthew 26.14-16, which is the 30 pieces of silver that was given to the Antichrist, Judas, who had Satan inside of him, that was given to Judas to deliver Christ. Because you can't betray omniscience. You can't. His job was to provide Christ. And he got 30 pieces of silver for it. And, and so the, the 30 pieces of silver that were given to Judas with Satan inside of him connects to the take me assignment because he's delivering the take me. Judas Satan is. Did that make sense? You're looking at me like, that didn't make any sense. Judas has got to deliver Christ. That's his role. Can't betray omniscience. That's impossible. Christ can read his mind. So, going to deliver him. That's his job. And for that job, he gets 30 pieces of silver, right? And he has to have the 30 pieces of silver because the plan is to throw the silver, which is the blood atonement price, 2 Samuel 24. He's got to throw the blood atonement price to the potter. And Exodus 30, 11 through 16 comes in there too as well. So the delivery must come, must precede the throwing. He can't throw the money until he delivers Christ. Now he regrets delivering Christ. He doesn't have remorse. He realizes, oh no, when I say he, them, Satan and him realize, oh no, we have been outmaneuvered by an omniscient mind. Well, yeah, what the, never mind. I warned you, didn't I, that Genesis 15 is a lifelong study. I'm supposed to get through 11 questions. I can't get through. I'm at, where am I at? Somewhere seven? I, 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 got, I don't even know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to check at the time. Holy mackerel, honey child. Did we start on time? Okay, i got to move. Okay, I warned you that Genesis 15 is going to take your, your whole life. And it was a mountain. It's a mountain, and that was my motivation and my disclaimer a couple of weeks ago. The attempt to gather all the pieces that attach to the mystery of the two birds is laborious. Some might suggest that it's painful. Certainly, it's not for those intentionally wedded to the simple. Proverbs one twenty two, Second Timothy four three through four, Hebrews five twelve through six one. The children of the of the Bible, the children of the church, the babies, the infants cannot get Genesis fifteen. Will never get Genesis fifteen. To just read it and go on like it's nothing. And it's unbelievable. The, the sequential order of Abraham's contribution, 
Abraham's contribution after the vultures, God imposes a deep sleep on Abraham. So we have this. And the behold is here. The horror and great darkness is a behold. What is the great behold? What is the astonishing truth that is within the horror and the great darkness? It would be correct, in my opinion, to combine the Genesis 2.21 Adamic sleep, deep sleep, with the behold, horror, and great darkness, forming a triad. So the deep sleep, the behold, the horror, and darkness. That's a triad. There's three of them. But with that said, the deep sleep, the horror, and the great darkness are suggested to be caused by what just happened before, which was Abraham's war with the vultures. In other words, the... Oh, gosh, slowed me down. The incident or condition traceable to the cause is what's happening here. Was the fight with the vultures the cause of the deep sleep, the horror, and the darkness? Are they interconnected? They obviously are. The order is the order. So maybe we can gain some ground by evaluating what is the next logical step that God places at this point. And what does he place? What comes next? Well, guess what it is? It's the Adamic, I'm sorry, the Abrahamic covenant, the sign of which is circumcision. We stop here and spend two years on circumcision now. The husband of blood, Exodus 4, 24, 26. Zipporah and Job's wife we have to deal with, Job 2, 9 through 10. Now, the fundamental of the words God says to Abraham, it's fantastic, Genesis 15, 13, is this issue. So God says something to Abraham, but we have to solve Abraham's cognitive state. Because what is he in? What state is he in when God talks to him? He's in a deep sleep with horror and great darkness. So, and God says something to him. He says this to Abraham, no, certainly, wow. No, for sure. What's Abraham want to know? Go back. No, certainly is in is his words from God. God says, no, certainly. How loud is his voice? Who's hearing him? And he's referring to Genesis 15, 8. That's the magnificent question. That's the cry. That's the plea. That's the prayer of Abraham. How can I know I'm going to be saved? How can I know it? Abraham was told of his future death by God here, when he would die, how he would die. He's going to die in peace. He's going to be in an advanced old age. That he, Abraham, the person, his memories, his self-awareness, his consciousness would continue, but his body would return to dust. He gave him Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 20 and 12:7. Was Abraham conscious during these words? Well, yes, he was. Was he able to move? And you'll both answer, no. He can't move. God immobilized another person. Fell at his feet as if dead. Deep sleep. I am suggesting, presenting, that Abraham fully understood but was immobilized. Why do I have this opinion? Because Abraham would see and he would hear and he'd understand. But he would be frozen, if you want to think of it that way. He'd be on his face as dead. He'd be in that position. Why would God constrain Abraham. Why would he do it? What's the point? Because Abraham has no contribution here. He has a contribution, but he has nothing, nothing that would qualify to do what comes next. And that would be to summate what what is necessary to follow. And that is going down of the sun, so there's more darkness, there's another behold, this fantastic behold, we have the appearing of the smoking fire pot furnace and the flaming torch light that passed between those pieces. Abraham did not pass between the pieces. He did not because he's disqualified. It's the same thing as going up on the altar. 
Moses builds an altar and God says, don't get on this altar. Don't come up here. You can't come up here. It's Nadab and Abihu putting strange things on the altar. You can't do it. You can't pass between the pieces. You'll die. He was not able. Abraham not able. Only Christ is qualified. Only Christ is able, which raises the triunity of God, the Asi Elohim. Uh, the 153 fish testify of the Elohim. How is it that the smoking fire pot furnace and the flaming torch light both testify of Christ? I should say, so I will, that they both testify also of the Father and the Holy Spirit and the entirety of the triune Godhead. Something we should expect. But for today, let's just try to make it blasphemous almost. The, the solution to sin is on display in Genesis 15. By blasphemous, I'm assigning the smoking pot and the flaming light just to Christ himself. Which I can't do because of the triunity of God and the sameness. All of that. Can't do it. Just did it anyway because I got no other way to say it because I'm a, a finite idiot. Okay. The smoking fire pot furnace of judgment passing through the long suffering light of life that is willing that none should perish. Thus we have John 5.22, which is judgment, Revelation 20.11 through 15, which is judgment, Daniel 7.9 through 10, which is judgment, alongside of, side by side, passing through these cut pieces, Second Peter 3.9, Matthew 26.36 through 39, John 11.35, John 11.38, and Genesis 6.6. 6. Side by side. The judge and the mercy reconciled to Genesis 15. That's what all that to say that. I got two omnipotent forces. Both are omnipotent. Yet there's a solution in that collision. You've heard me say that. Omnipotence versus omnipotence. There is a solution. There's reconciliation. Now we can answer in part the horror and great darkness that Abraham saw. 1 Peter 3.18 talks about the suffering of Christ. Christ suffered. How does Christ, God himself in the flesh, suffer? What makes him suffer? Same question, why does he grieve? Same question, why does he weep? Same question, why does he groan? What does he regret, Genesis 6? Again, same question. All of that's the same. Remember, the darkness was all over the land during the crucifixion, Matthew 27, 45, Mark 15, 33. Over the whole earth, darkness, Luke 23:44. The whole earth went dark during the crucifixion. The cup that Christ drank was a great whore. Did Abraham see the horror and the utter darkness of the crucifixion and the cup? Did he see why? Not just see it, did he understand why? We'll have to lay that out later. Not today, you got no time. I have to hurry now, really go fast. Hopefully you have begun to associate Thomas and Abraham. I hope you did. Because there they are. Because after the Abrahamic covenant is announced, the conclusion of the matter, the sign that the solution exists in Revelation 13.8 has always, before the foundation of, of creation, been the truth. The truth has always existed. The lamb slain disentangles the unsolvable omnipotent collision paradox that disproves the lie of Satan again. And what is the sign of that disproval? Resurrection. Both men... Abraham and Thomas knew, believed, that they would be given eternal life. Based on what? Same reason. They both saw the same thing. 
Abraham saw the take me animals resurrected and Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus Christ himself. They saw the same thing. They both saw Jesus Christ resurrected. One in a portrayal of animals and the other actually got to see it. So you put Thomas and Abraham together and you work out Genesis 15. Question number eight. Why were all the angels faithful and demonic required to watch the slaughter of the apostles? The answer is in Genesis 15. I have already settled this, actually. The obvious solution is obvious. How obvious may not be obvious. There are two deaths and there are two lives. He who loses his life for my sake, Matthew 16.25, will what? Will save it. How does that fit? Okay, got a now. Wow. Two birds of Genesis 15, Leviticus 14. Why were they not cut in two? That's Mindy. Hi, Mindy. Maybe you're watching. Probably you're not. What has Naaman and leprosy have to do with the two birds? 2 Kings 5, Genesis 15, Luke 4, 27, Luke 5, 12 through 15, Mark 1, 40 through 41, Matthew 8, 2 and 3. Matthew 8, 2 and 3 has a behold. Christ cleansed the lepers. Nobody could cleanse lepers. No leper was ever cleansed except Naaman, but Christ cleansed them. And it says a great multitude came to be healed by Christ once he cleansed those lepers, or one leper. How big is a great multitude, and how many of the great multitude are lepers? I'm going to tell you the lepers are going like crazy. I submit every leper that heard or saw the healed, cleansed leper ran to Christ. Remember Christ said, don't go tell anybody what the guy do. Went told everybody. Of course he did. His whole family probably had leprosy. All his friends had leprosy. He's going to tell them. How the healing, cleansing of the lepers begins with this plea from a dying leper. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. How did the leper know that? How did he know? He knows. How does he know? Jesus God has this powerful, stunning, far-reaching answer. I am willing, touches the leprosy on the leper. He touches a leper. Be cleansed, he says. Instantly, that leper is cleansed. Instantly. God does things instantly. Just saying that. We should know what the instantly things are. Everything he does instantly, we should know about. Genesis 15 is marinated in the crisis that is the sin of mankind. Leprosy is a symbol. It's an unmistakable symbol of sin. No controversy about that. Therefore, the two birds of Genesis 15 and Leviticus 14 will illuminate, provide information on the solution to sin, which is Genesis 15, as we all know. But notice first, God is willing, which means what? The guy says, do you have will? Will you exercise that will? I not only have will, but I willfully will cleanse you. God has will. To repeat from an earlier lecture, did God give will to the angelic realm? Did he give it to the animal kingdom? Did he give will to humanity? Yes or no? Simple questions, binary. Everybody that thinks no, never raise your hand here. Because you aren't going to win. If the template for the new city of Jerusalem is the Bible, and it is, and the Bible is that which testifies to Jesus Christ, John 5.39, and it does. That's his whole function. Then transitive property, we always have math. The template of the new city of Jerusalem is Christ himself. The infinite God added humanity. The hypostatus forever. Exodus 24 through 6. John 18.9 tells you that. By adding humanity, 
the word was fulfilled. The 24 through 6 of Exodus was fulfilled. John 18, 9. Christ is the infinite adding what seemed to be finite or what seems to be finite. We are so dumb we think it's finite. It appears to be finite. Then the new city of Jerusalem is equivalent. In effect, infinity within that which seems to be finity. Finally, there's this un. This Genesis 2.17, Ecclesiastes 3.18.20, Ecclesiastes 12.7, dualism that is portrayed by the two birds. You can't miss it. It's impossible to miss the dualism. One of the birds is killed in an earthen vessel over living water. Christ, John 4.10, is the living water. Therefore, I have Genesis 2.7 here, don't I? I have... One of the birds going to earth or to dust. The dust of the earth. With the breath of the spirit of life within. The living bird then is dipped into the blood of the dead bird. that has the living water in it. So the living bird is dipped into the living water. In other words, the living bird is dipped in the blood of the dead bird and it's covered. So the living bird is covered in the blood of the dead bird. So there you go. You got blood atonement. That should get you started. 